Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. It's a privilege to be with you tonight, and uh, uh, thanks for coming out in the middle of this week uh, to learn more about why it's so important we give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview. About 16 years ago, as I was watching our country collapse under the weight of moral decadence and false ideologies, God burned into my heart a new passion. I was already working hard for Jesus. I was a pastor. But he burned into my heart a new passion to stop just cursing the darkness, which we all do as Christians sometimes, and we ought to, but to start taking the light of his beautiful design into that darkness. As a result of this awakening, we launched Renew a Nation with the vision to transform our culture by giving millions of children a biblical worldview. How many of you think if we can just give millions of children a biblical worldview and unleash them into this world, that'd be a good thing in our world? Amen. And our mission is to inspire and equip the family, church, and school to give children a biblical worldview because we have discovered that when you get the family, the church, and the school all teaching God's truth, that is a three-stranded cord that is not easily broken in the life of a child. So tonight I want to share with you six reasons why we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview. But before I do that, I want to take a moment and define what I mean by the term worldview. Perhaps that's, I'm confident, you've heard the term many times in this church, but for some it's new. A worldview is that set of presuppositions and beliefs that we use to interpret and form opinions and values concerning life, humanity, family, authority, justice, truth, duty, etc. Our worldview is the big picture and culmination of all of our beliefs. It is the way we understand reality. It is the basis from which we make all of our daily decisions. So all of you adults here tonight, you already have a fully developed worldview of some kind. Hopefully it's a biblical worldview. It could be an unbiblical worldview. Likely, for many of us, it's a hybrid of the two. Any area of your life where you understand God's Word and you understand how to apply that to your life, then I promise you, in those areas, that's where you're living out a biblical worldview, and that, those are the areas where you have the most peace, productivity, prosperity, whatever. That's where good things are happening, where you're following God's good plan and design. If there are areas of your life, not maybe perhaps because of you, but maybe somebody in your life, where you are not living out a biblical worldview, set aside the physical side of things, but where you're not living out a biblical worldview, those would be the areas where you're having discord and problems and trouble. Because when we do not follow God's good design, we end up in a place that we don't want to be. So every adult here tonight already has a fully developed worldview of some kind. Every child represented here tonight, either your children or the children of this school or this church or your grandchildren who may not be here tonight, all of them are in the process of developing a worldview. The question is not, will my child have a worldview? The question simply is, which one will they develop? And I'll let you know a little secret right up front here tonight. The world, Satan's system is in the worldview-shaping business. They're coming after our children and our grandchildren. They are passionate to give them an unbiblical worldview. I speak on a number of occasions each year with George Barna, and he has been, in one speech that he's been giving lately, uh, George Barna, if you don't know, he's the most well-known Christian sociologist of the last 40 years in America. And uh, he's, he's been researching the church and evangelicalism and Christianity in our country for decades. And he's been giving this statement in, each of his, in, in the speech that I hear him give several times a year. And he's been saying this, the worldview, he says, or core set of beliefs a child has at the age of 13 is statistically the worldview they will die with. Think about that for a moment. He, say, he, he, he says in his 40 years of research... He has now concluded that what a child believes, their core set of beliefs at 13 years of age, is statistically the worldview they will die with. I have discovered that whoever has the most access to the hearts and minds of our children will determine which worldview they develop. 
Whoever has the most access to their hearts and minds will determine the worldview they develop. Now, lest you think this is just some theoretical or philosophical discussion tonight, let me remind you that what you believe, what you believe, your worldview has real life consequences. I remember when I was just a kid, I was probably in the second or third grade. I am one of nine children. My dad was a pastor and many other things in ministry. And um, we lived in southern Indiana. My dad pastored a little country church at the time. We were just young. And uh, we didn't have television. Obviously, we didn't have any video games. We didn't have phones or anything like that. And so literally, my parents pretty much, we woke up in the morning, especially in the summer, and my mom got us all ready, and then she said, go play. And that meant get out of the house, okay? And so we had, we had a ball. We, we just went out and created all of our own fun. I think that's why all of my siblings are in some kind of leadership, it seems like, because we didn't have anybody to entertain us. We created entertainment, folks, and it was fun. So we got into this crazy thing, my brother and I and some of our buddies, of creating all these clubs, and so I remember one club we created, and it was always, we were always the leader, leaders of the clubs, but the community kids, the boys, they wanted to join our clubs, you know? And so we decided that you can't be in our clubs unless you go through initiation. It was fun. I remember we had this one club, and we were standing next to a cow pasture next to our church, and this neighborhood boy was like, I want to be in the club. We said, but you have to go through initiation. He said, well, what do I have to do? And one of us, I think it must have been my older brother, because he was born with a double dose of depravity. But anyhow, he looked at the kid and said, you have to eat cow manure. Right there. Eat that. And the kid was dumb enough to do it. But the encouraging thing, it wasn't fresh, it was kind of crunchy, so I'm sure it tasted kind of like chips, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Well, that was all good until Jimmy, my oldest brother, who's four years older than I am, he was, he unfortunately just passed away at 59 years old, three or four months ago, our hearts are broken, but anyhow, Jimmy decided to steal my best friend Kevin and start a new club that I wasn't a part of. And they started this club in one of my favorite trees that I loved to climb. And it was right beside the road, and this was a tree that we hung out in all the time. And Jimmy came to me and said, Kevin and I have started a new club, and you're not in it until you go through initiation. Now, I'll be honest with you, Jimmy was my hero. He taught me how to play every sport there was. He was a phenomenal athlete. Whatever Jimmy wanted me to do, I wanted to do. So my little worldview said, it doesn't matter what he asked me to do. I'm going to do it because I've got to be in the club and I've got to be able to climb that tree again. And so Jimmy, we're standing by the road. He reaches down and he picks a rock up about that big. And he said, all you have to do, this is initiation, stand on the pavement and hit the next car that comes by with his rock. I told you, that woman right there had a double dose of depravity, I'm telling you. Well, my little worldview, I did a little calculation. I said, look, my deal is I got to get in the club. I've got to get in the tree. All I've got to do is stand on the road and throw one rock and it's it. I'm in. So, I mean, my whole worldview was wrapped around getting in the club and I said, it'll work. And so, believe it or not, I took the rock. I stood on the pay, but this was a country road. We had one car every 10 or 15 minutes. It wasn't like somebody was going to miss me. But I didn't think about that. All I could think about, I was got to get in the club. And so here comes this dear elderly man driving this old station wagon down the road, and I wind up and I sock him right in the passenger door. I don't know if you ever did anything stupid when you're a kid, but the moment you did something stupid, the moment I did something stupid, I would wake up and realize that I was getting ready to die, you know? And I remember hearing that rock hit that car, and I said, oh no, I'm in big trouble now. I mean, all my worldview changed immediately. And until my brother's last days, he told me over and over again, he said, Jeff, the only thing I remember was when you, when the rock hit the car, I turned to my right and you were gone. He said, I saw the bottom of your white tennis shoes doing this across the field. Actually, what I did is I ran in the back door of the parsonage. We were doing this next to the parsonage pastor. It was great for church church growth and, you know, evangelism. But anyhow, I ran in the back door and my mother must have thought I, you know, I must have looked like I'd seen a ghost because my mother, she said, Jeffrey, what have you done? And I said, if I tell you, you promise you will never tell dad. And the evidence that she did not tell my dad is I'm here tonight, okay? That's the whole evidence. 
Actually, what she said was, she said, if you promise, you'll never do it again. And I never threw another rock at a car. The beautiful thing about that, God does have a sense of justice. The guy slammed on his brakes, backed up, and blamed the whole thing on my brother Jimmy. <laughs> the guy, Jimmy said, I didn't do it. That was my brother. And the guy said, no, no, I saw you throw the <laughs> God has such a great sense of justice. But anyhow, my little false worldview almost got me in some serious trouble. On a much more serious note, on 9-11, 19 young men lived out their radical Islamic worldview and took the lives of 3,000 innocent Americans and hundreds of thousands since then. I, had I have a brother and two nephews who fought in that war on terror, and hundreds of thousands of people died the world over because of the actions of these 19 young men. These young men believed with all their heart that what they were doing was right. They even believed that what they were doing was the work of God by killing Americans. I've watched those videos of these young men going through the metal detectors on 9-11. I've looked in their faces. I've said, what were they thinking? Surely they were out of their minds. Surely they were crazy. What, how could 19 young men do that together? But I have concluded they were not out of their minds at all. From the time they had been just little boys, people had poured a worldview into their mind. They had shaped their beliefs to believe that if they would kill the infidels, especially American infidels, that God would honor them, reward them, and bless them for all eternity. And that false worldview led to absolute devastations. Devastation. Worldviews have consequences. What we believe determines all of our actions, and our actions have real-life consequences for good and bad. Our nation is an absolute mess today because millions of people have not been taught the truth as children, and now as adults they are living out their false worldview. Again, I speak all over the country. Precious elderly saints come up to me on a very regular basis and ask me, Jeff, what has happened to our nation? And they'll say, I'm 75 years old. I'm 85 years old. I remember when there was somewhat of a Judeo-Christian understanding, ethic in this nation. What happened, Jeff? How did we lose our minds? And I look them in the face and say, for the last few generations, we did not teach enough children the truth. And today, they don't even think their actions are crazy because their worldview is out of whack. So quickly tonight, let me give you six reasons why we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview. First of all, our children and grandchildren belong to God. We are only their managers and stewards. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Many in our world today do not believe this. Children have become an inconvenience to a successful career. Children have become a financial burden that prevents couples from traveling and recreating as they like. Did you know there are huge groups now on social media, and there are young couples who are out here talking about why they will never have children, how children would just hinder them from having fun and traveling the world. I was in an automotive shop maybe a year ago, and I was sitting there waiting for something, and in walked a woman, and I found out later, an 11-year-old girl. And the woman was very, very, uh, she was talking uh, filthy to the people at the shop. She must have known them in some way, and she was just, she, she had a filthy mouth. And she was talking to them, and she turned around and looked at her 11-year-old daughter and said, I don't even know why I had this one. It shocked me that she would say that in front of her daughter. And actually, I couldn't hold back. I usually stay out of other people's business. But since she said it right in front of me, I thought, well, it's my business now. And I looked at her and I said, well, I bet you'll be happy when you're 80 years old and she's taking care of you. And she looked at me and said, no, I won't. I won't live that old. I don't care. She thought this child was a burden and inconvenience rather than a gift from God. The evidence that couples do not value children today is seen in the data. Couples are waiting longer and longer to get married. The average age in the U.S. now is around 29 years of age. I'm not saying that's always wrong. I'm just saying we're waiting longer and longer to get married. We're waiting longer to have children after marriage and having fewer and fewer children in the USA. You understand you have to average 2.1 births per family in order to maintain a population. 
We were doing pretty well in the United States until just a few years ago. We were above that a little bit, and we've dropped off to maybe 1.5, 1.6, something like that now, children per family in the United States. If it wasn't for immigration, we would be a dying population right now. In Europe, they've been below the birth rate, necessary birth rate to maintain a population for decades now, and they're down maybe around 1, 1 1.2 children per family in Europe, Europeans, and yet the Islamic families, the Muslim families in Europe are averaging about 8 children per family. Some sociologists believe that Europe will be ruled by Islam within the next 30 to 50 years by birth rate alone. When you violate God's good design, when you do not understand that children are a gift from the Lord, they belong to the Lord, He's given them to us to manage and to steward and to raise as godly offspring, then we end up with some desperate situations. China is in an absolute mess right now. Have you heard about it? For decades now, they've had a one-child-only policy. Guess what? They don't have enough young people now to care for the elderly. It's a a terrible. Now they're begging families in China to have three children because it's so out of whack. My dad never got the memo about children being a burden. I told you he had nine kids. We've given him 41 grandkids. Now there's over 60-some great-grandkids. My parents are 78 years old. They have 100-and-some grandkids. And, uh, and uh, it's, we just have a massive family, 150 of us. I think 70-plus of us are in some kind of full-time ministry. Uh, you know what? My dad thought he was going to replenish the whole earth, and he did a pretty good job, didn't he? Perhaps the greatest trust any person could ever be given is the responsibility of a child. As soon as our first daughter, Juliana, was born, and then our second daughter, Heidi, I realized that I was responsible for their physical and even more importantly, their spiritual well-being. I was fully aware from day one that I would stand before God someday and give an account for how I had managed these girls and raised these girls. I've always known that God would not necessarily ask me about their position in life or their level of wealth. He would simply want me to know if I had taught them to know Him, love Him, and serve Him with a passion. Because of this understanding, my wife and I determined that we would do everything in our power to help our girls know God's truth, and we would do everything possible to make sure that they would not be influenced by those who would lead them away from God's truth until they were mature enough to stand on their own faith. Parents and grandparents, it is our primary responsibility to make sure that our children know, love, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just say something to grandparents here. Dr. Josh Mulvihill, I'm going to mention a couple books that he's written. Uh, He's our director of church and family ministry. He also has eight books that he's either written or edited on biblical grandparenting. Listen to me, parents and grandparents tonight. The American model of grandparenting is broken and unbiblical. We have this idea that we should work real hard, save up enough money to go south if you're in the north and get in the warmth and stay there and let somebody else worry about your grandchildren. I'm going to tell you something. It is God's good design that grandchildren, pour, grandparents pour into their grandchildren and help with their spiritual development. I'm not saying you can't slow down, you can't relax, you can't have fun, but don't abandon your grandchildren. They need their grandparents. Everything in this culture is working against us, so we must be intentional and determined to make this a reality. Secondly, we must be about the business of giving our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview is because we want them to grow up to bless our hearts, not break them. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. A foolish son is a ruin to his father, and train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now listen to me. This is a tough point in this speech, so you got to stay with me all the way to the end, all right? There is, I want you to hear this, there is no absolute guarantee that if we give our children a biblical worldview, they will choose a path of righteousness. I believe a a child has a choice. So there's no absolute guarantee that if we give them a biblical worldview, they'll choose a path of righteousness. However, there is a guarantee that if we do not give them a biblical worldview, they will go astray and break our hearts. They will go astray and break our hearts. There's a big sign at Sherwood Baptist Church down in Albany, Georgia. As you begin, this is the church that made all the movies, Facing the Giants and all that stuff. And one of my board members uh, was the head of the school down there when they were making all those movies, Dr. Glenn Schultz. But the sign at the back of the Sherwood Church says this right before you leave, whoever wants the next generation the most 
will get them. Think about it. Whoever wants the next generation the most will get them. The devil is passionate about capturing the hearts and minds of our children and grandchildren. We must, with the help of the Holy Spirit, be much more passionate. Let me tell you something. I get up every day and say, devil, listen to me. You've gotten enough of our kids. I'm fighting for their hearts and minds and their souls today. And as moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and leaders of this school and leaders of this church, you got to get up every day and say, I'm fighting for the hearts and minds of our children today. We're going to win them for Christ. The statistics show that if we will be diligent about leading our children and grandchildren to Christ and instilling a biblical worldview in their hearts and minds, a vast majority of them will grow up to bless our hearts, not break them. Now let me talk to every person in the room who has a wayward child or grandchild. I told you of the nine Keaton kids, eight of us went into full-time Christian ministry, vocational ministry, but one of our brothers was rebellious. We're proud of his service. He spent 24 years in the military. He's a wounded warrior today. We love our brother. We're proud of him. He fought hard for this country. But he broke our hearts. He crushed my parents. We couldn't fathom the things he was doing as a young man. And when I was pastoring, people would come in and say to me, people would come into my office, elderly saints would come into my office and say, listen, Pastor Jeff, I think I'm the only one who prays for my lost child or my lost grandchild. Who is going to pray for him when I die? And I would tell them the same thing, same thing I'll tell you tonight. Every prayer you've ever prayed for a lost or wayward child is deposited eternally in the heart of a God who never dies. And long after you're gone, listen to me, you got a wayward child or grandchild, long after you're gone, God will continue to answer those prayers that you have prayed. So I'm here to tell you tonight, pray until your last breath. Speak love and kindness to your lost children and grandchildren. Don't beat them down. Don't, don't take them out of the will. Don't unlove them because they're not walking with Jesus. Love them with all of your heart. Speak words to them about your hopes for them to know Christ. And leave the rest up to the Holy Spirit. I have been blessed to be on the other end of that coin so many times. Had somebody 60, 70, 80 years old, and I was leading them to Christ. And as after they prayed to be saved, they would start weeping. And here's what they said to me over and over again. Oh, you don't know how bad I wish my mother was here. My mother prayed for me for a lifetime. I was rebellious. I never came to Christ. Many of them said this to me, Pastor, on her deathbed or on his deathbed, my dad said to me, Son, please give your life to Jesus Christ. I want to see you in heaven someday. And here I am. The parents have been gone for 20 or 30 years, and I have the joy of leading to Christ. So you pray until you die in breath and believe that God is going to move on their souls. A third reason why we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview is we want them to experience the joy and satisfaction that comes from living in harmony with God's law and design. Did you know that all of God's laws are filled with God's love? All of them. Did you know we don't have a mean God in the Old Testament, a nice God in the New Testament? All of God's laws are filled with His love. His laws were put in place to protect us, not restrict us. I was so privileged in my first pastorate, it was inner city, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and most of the people that came into the church and got saved were drug addicts and alcoholics. And they were a wild and crazy bunch. I remember one day I was sitting with a lady who was thinking about becoming a Christian, and she had lived this wild and crazy life. She had multiple marriages, and it was just a mess. And she actually said, because this is what the devil tells people, she actually said to me, she said, Pastor, I want to become a Christian, but I'm just afraid I won't be able to have any fun anymore. And I literally looked at her and said, how much fun have you been having? Look at your life. It's a wreck. And the devil says, you know, and in the world today, not understanding the truth of Christianity, Christianity is about a bunch of do's and don'ts and all this. No, it's not. God gave us a love letter. He gave us a manual. He said, here's my plan. Here's my design. Live according to it, and you'll have a wonderful life in so many ways. We'll, we'll never avert tragedy. We live in a fallen world. But the bottom line is, those who live according to God's good design have more harmony and peace and joy and happiness than anybody else. And yet, somehow the world thinks 
It's all about do's and don'ts. Just imagine our world if everyone would simply obey the Ten Commandments alone. No lying, no stealing, no adultery. Be a pretty nice place to live, wouldn't it? If we just follow that part of God's good design. When we diligently teach our children and grandchildren the truth of God's Word and help them see all of life through the lens of God's Word, we set them up for a joyous life. We can never take away all their pain or tragedy, but we can help them to live under the blessings that come from living in harmony with God's good plan. When our children and grandchildren come to know and love Christ and understand His will for their lives, they will not experience the unnecessary suffering that comes from breaking the laws of God. Fourth reason why we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview is we want them to carry the Christian faith to generations to come. In Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, we see how quick faith can be lost in a family. We are told in this passage that Joshua and the generation below him who had seen the great things the Lord had done served the Lord. But by the time, this is so sad when I read through this each and every year, by the time we get to Joshua's grandchildren, we read these sad words, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord of the work that he had done for Israel. Joshua, a generation below him, they did not know the Lord who had just brought him out of Egypt, who had helped him to conquer Canaan. They didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done. I have discovered that a family can lose faith in one generation. I was speaking at the Ronald Reagan Library right close to here a few years ago, and I had to go catch a plane at LAX to go back. I was flying straight through to D.C. and then flying down to my home in Virginia. And I was sitting in the waiting area praying and hoping that there would be an empty seat next to me on this five-hour flight to D.C. You know, the Lord doesn't like that prayer because He never answers it for me hardly. I always have two-ton Tony sitting next to me, but anyhow. Anyhow, on this flight, I got on the plane. I go to the back of the—we were on the back wall of the plane, which wasn't the greatest seat in the world, but I had the aisle seat. There was about a 30-year-old man sitting on the window. And there was an empty seat in between us. And I knew because I'd watched the screen all the way to the very end. I said, that's it. It's going to happen. One time I'm going to get to fly to D.C. without somebody next to me for five hours. I walked up to the back row and I looked at the young man sitting over there against the window and I said, this is our lucky flight, brother. We're going to have an empty seat in between us tonight. And he said, oh man, I was hoping a naked woman would come and sit with us. I said, dear Lord. I said, well, I'm not hoping for that. I'm happily married. He goes, well, marriage is okay too. And I plopped down in my seat, and as soon as I sat down, he goes, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I told him. And he goes immediately, I mean, this guy was full of talk. He goes, oh, so you're a man of faith. I'm a man of facts. I'm an agnostic. I thought, dear Lord. You know, he had to get my permission to go to the bathroom for the next five hours. That was going to be a rough flight on him. I do not argue with people. I love talking to people on airplanes. I ask them questions often. I, I ask a lot of questions. By the way, that's a great way to witness people. Learn about them. Learn about their religion. I don't care what their religion is. When they tell me they're a Muslim, I say, okay, I need to know more about Islam. Tell me, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think? I ask them all kinds of questions. What is heaven to you? And in the course of asking, they get to flowing, and then I can see points where I can say, well, let me tell you what we believe about this. So I just looked at him and I said, and sometimes I do like to ask him questions I don't think they could answer. And so he was so confident that I was just a man of simple faith, and he was a man with all the facts that I looked at him. I said, well, since I'm just a man of simple faith and you're a man with all the facts, tell me how we got here. He immediately said, oh, the Big Bang, that's how we got here. I said, okay, so you believe in the Big Bang. Where did all the stuff come from that blew up? He thought about it for a moment, and he said, mm. oh, oh, I know. He said, I heard a mathematician give the formula for that. I said, you heard a mathematician give the formula for how everything came out of nothing. Yeah, yeah, I heard the formula. <laughs> you talk about faith. I said, and what was that mathematician's name? And he thought about it for a moment. He goes, I, I have no idea. I don't know who he was. I said, man, honestly, I think you have more faith than I do. 
He said, I'm not a man of faith. I said, oh, yes, you are. I said, I have my faith in a God who gave us a book. I compare that book to reality, and it makes tremendous sense. I said, you have your faith in a mathematician whose name you don't even know. And that started a two-and-a-half-hour worldview discussion. The people in front of us got saved 11 times on one flight. I promise you they're still talking about that talk. That precious young man, he said, you all hate this group and you hate that group and Christians hate this. He didn't even know what Christians believed, honestly. But somewhere in the middle of that discussion, he stopped me. He goes, I got to tell you something. I said, what? He said, my grandmother on the one side is a Southern Baptist woman. And my grandmother on the other side is a Mennonite woman. And my name is Matthew Adam. I was taken back. And then I envisioned, and I've envisioned much more since then, that 30 years earlier, a little Southern Baptist grandmother got a phone call from a woman who had just had a baby or was about to have a baby, and this woman thought so highly of the Scriptures that she named her son Matthew Adam. And no doubt that little Mennonite and Southern Baptist, both those grandmothers went to the hospital, and no doubt they picked that little boy up and looked in his face and dreamed, oh, how is God going to use my grandson? But I'm sitting with him on the back of an airplane 30 years later, and he doesn't believe a single thing his parents and grandparents believe, not a single thing. Ladies and gentlemen, if we are not super intentional about training our children, the world is super intentional about getting their minds, capturing their minds. We have to go all in today if we hope to pass our faith on to future generations. Number five, we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview because we want to spend all eternity with our children and grandchildren. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? you gotta, you got to make a decision about what is going to be important to your family and your children. There is a phenomenon, and I have no clue, I haven't talked to your pastor about this, nobody in this school about this, so I'm not picking on anybody tonight, but there's a new phenomenon in America. It's called travel ball. Everywhere I go these days, heads of schools and pastors are saying, Jeff, it's nuts. And I began to think about my experience with it. My brother, who is now my pastor, he, he planted a church out of my church when I was still pastoring, and now I attend his church. And he told me a story one day that just kind of blew my mind. He said, Jeff, I had this guy come up to me. And my brother has a big church, lots of people. He said, I had this man come up to me with his 11-year-old son, and for some reason he felt led to tell me that, hey, my son and I are going to be gone for a few Sundays to play travel baseball. And that wasn't uncommon to my brother. There's tons of people, you know. And my brother just kind of nonchalantly said, okay, well, how many Sundays are you going to be gone? And the dad looked at my brother and said, we'll be gone for the next 22 straight weeks. That was when that boy was 11. When that boy was 17 years old, his father had the audacity to come back to our student ministry pastor and say, there's something bad wrong with your church and your youth ministry. My son has no desire to even go to church. And he told us it was our church's problem. Listen to me. I'm not against travel ball. I'm not, my, my daughter was an all-state basketball player. I remember when we came to this decision about AAU in the summer. If she was going to go play college ball, she, had, she needed to play AAU. The AAU teams were asking her over and over to come play on their teams. And I remember I knew what I was going to do. But I sat down with her and I said, Juliana, we need to think about this. If you play AAU, you're going to miss family camp, you're going to miss youth camp. I had already made my mind up what I was going to do, but I wanted to see what she said. And she looked at me, praise God, she made it easy on me. She said, I'm not missing family camp, and I'm not missing youth camp. I don't care if I play college basketball. I don't care at all. I am not missing those things. And my girl's in love with Jesus today, and I'm so glad that we didn't let that dominate her whole life. Now, I would have let her play some AAU. Don't misunderstand me. But I wasn't going to let her miss all of that, I promise you. Because what does it profit a young man if that boy had made Major League Baseball, but he doesn't know Jesus, that's an, you get an F for parenting. I say to people, if your kid makes it to Harvard, but they don't make it to heaven, you get an F for parenting. All right? I mean, we got to take the long view here. I'm not saying a kid can't go to Harvard. I'm not saying a kid can't play Major League Baseball. There's some wonderful Christians in Major League Baseball. I praise God for that. 
But we better make sure that we have our priorities straight. So if giving our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview is such a great idea, how are we doing? I like to categorize the millennials primarily as those born in the 80s and 90s. There's a lot of people that use different numbers, but in the 80s and 90s, we had about 75 to 80 million babies born in the United States. They're now actually more like 23 to 43 years old. They're the largest generation in American history. They're the most educated generation in American history, and they're the least religious generation in American history. 40% of those, these are new statistics from George Barna, 40% of those do not care or know, care, or believe that God exists. 67% do not believe in the God described in the Bible. 75% of the millennials do not believe that all religious faiths are of equal value. Almost 50% favor socialism over capitalism. Only 23% profess Jesus as their Savior. And I asked George Barna this to his face. I said, George, what what are your statistics on how many of those 75 to 80 million millennials have a biblical worldview? And he literally said to me, do you want to get depressed? I said, no, but tell me the truth. He said, 4%. So 3 million, roughly a little more than 3 million, have a biblical worldview. What I've been saying to people over the last few years is what we did in the evangelical church and obviously in the broader culture in America did not work. And the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. So what I'm saying in the family, in the church, and in the school, we've got to be more intentional. We've got to pour truth into the hearts and minds of our children. And they will respond, I have no doubt. This next generation, we call them Gen Z, born from 2000 to 2012. They're actually now about 11 to 23 years old. This generation is the first to be fully indoctrinated with critical theory in the areas of sexuality, gender, race, economics, etc. They have no idea who they are, what their purpose is, and they are harming themselves and taking their lives in record numbers. A full 38% of 18 to 24-year-olds in the United States today declare themselves LGBTQ+. 38%. I spoke to hundreds of minority students in Miami about three weeks ago, middle and high school kids. And the first thing I did, because the school head of school came to me and said, 70% of them are unchurched, and this is the toughest bunch of kids you're ever going to speak to, basically. I stood up and I looked them in the face and I asked them this question. This is my first question when I stood up. Why do you hate yourself so much? And why are you killing yourself so often? And I'll tell you something, that hard bunch of kids, I got their attention. And they gave me about 20 or 30 answers from the audience as to why they hate themselves so much. I will say this, social media was one of them. A major part of what's going on. So the question is, now that we're all depressed, is there any hope for this generation? You see, 50% of fixing any problem is diagnosing what the problem actually is. And we, we haven't done well in the church. We haven't done well in the family. And we obviously have not allowed, we've allowed too many of our children to be in schools that were not teaching them the truth over the last 50 years. You better believe there's hope for this generation. And here's number six, if you're taking it down. When you win the heart and mind of just one child, they can literally change our world so this is TJ. I told this story this morning, but I've got to tell it to you tonight. TJ came into our Christian school when he was a young kid. We had him for nine years. He graduated in about 2014. If you'd have come to me when he was a junior or senior and said, you know, uh, in, in this junior or senior class, pick out the one kid you think will do the best defending his faith out there when he gets outside of this world, I would never have picked TJ. <laughs> he was from a good Christian home. Uh, he was a good kid overall, but he was pretty much occupied with uh, basketball basketball, baseball, and pretty girls. Uh, I never caught him sneaking off reading a biblical worldview book for the fun of it, ever, not one time. And uh, yet, like a lot of young men, he stayed home after he graduated from high school, and he decided that he would go off to a local non-Christian college. And for the first time in nine years, TJ uh, had a professor, a teacher that hated Christianity. He hated the Bible. He loved abortion. It was crazy. Everything TJ was against, this guy was for, and everything TJ was for, this guy was against. It was a little shock to his system after being in a Christian school for nine years. And some people have said to me through the years, well, if you shelter these kids, when they hit the real world, they'll crumble. They'll crumble if you hadn't taught them the truth and how to think and to know 
what is right and what is not true. So TJ, his father told me the story first, and so then I went and sat down with TJ and said, tell me what happened in that class. And he said it was the oddest thing. It was an English class. And he said for some reason that English teacher kept, uh, kept having this split and splitting the class in, in, in two groups. There was 25 kids in the class. TJ was the only one that had a biblical worldview educational background. And he said the teacher kept splitting the class into two groups, and he would make them debate each other over benign subjects like, what is the best restaurant in our city? TJ literally said, I was going to pick Chick-fil-A. You know, I'm a Christian kid. You know, why not? He said, somebody else picked Chick-fil-A, and I destroyed Chick-fil-A in my argument. (laughs) For whatever reason, and I think I know why, whatever debate team TJ landed on, that team won almost every single debate. Because the way the guy would judge was at the end of each debate, he would say, if you've changed your mind, switch sides. And TJ's team kept winning debate after debate. I'll tell you why. We taught him how to think. We taught him how to analyze. We taught him how to use logic, okay? He wasn't taught groupthink in our school. And so everything was going so swell that one day this this anti-Christian teacher came over to TJ in the class and said, son, all I can say for you is that you ought to become a lawyer because you're amazing at this debate thing. And TJ's like, okay, good. You know, he doesn't really know I'm a Christian yet. I hope he doesn't find out because he'll probably dock my papers or something. He hates Christianity so much. And TJ was like, it was all going pretty well until I walked into class one day and the guy stood up and said, today we're going to debate abortion. And TJ said, I said, oh no, I'm going to get exposed. And to TJ's horror, the teacher said, if you're for abortion, come over to this side. And he watched 23 students say they were for abortion. He was the only one who stood up and said he was against abortion. And he said, there was one other kid who stood up and said, I don't know what I'm for, but I'm going with TJ because he wins all these debates. (laughs) TJ literally told me the first thing that crossed my mind was, why didn't I listen more in school? We hashed this issue out massively in different classes. I I should have listened more. (laughs) And he said, honestly, he said, I didn't know if I was ready for this debate. He said, but the teacher looked at those 23 kids who were for abortion. He said, since there's so many of you, you guys go ahead and go first. And TJ said, they started making their case for abortion. And he said, the more they talked, the more I realized this wasn't going to be near as hard as I thought it was. (laughs) He literally said this. He did not call the kids stupid, but he said their arguments were utterly stupid. And I knew it. So they finished making their case, and the teacher looked at TJ and said, well, TJ, it's your turn. And TJ did not know where it came from, but he said from somewhere down within him, one point after another after another about why abortion was not good for our country, our society, for women, for children, he went down through this whole thing. Here's what I've discovered. When you baptize children in the truth, when they need it, the Spirit of God will bring it to the surface. And that's what happened with TJ. And he got so bold that when he got all done with all, making all of his points, he literally looked at the class and said, in reality, if what I've just said is true, and it is, every time a woman has an abortion, they're murdering a baby. And even when I, when I tell this story anywhere, it breaks my heart, because probably somebody here's had an abortion. Many of you were lied to. God has forgiven you, no doubt. I don't want to add guilt to you. It infuriates me how we lie to young ladies about this issue. But anyhow, as that teacher did at the end of every debate, he looked at the class and said, if you've changed your mind, switch sides. And TJ was blown away when all 23 young men and women came over to his side. All it took was one young man with a biblical worldview who was able to articulate it to win the hearts and minds of 24 other students. This is the mission of Renewination. This is the mission of your church. This is the mission of your school. This should be the mission of your family to roll young men and women like TJ out into this darkened world so they can truly change our world. So what should we do as I work towards a close quickly? First of all, as moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, we've got to acknowledge there's a problem. What we've done in the past hasn't worked. We have to do much better. We need to evaluate and manage our children's media intake. 
A child will spend between, from 6 to 18 years old, they'll spend between 15 and 20,000 hours watching movies, television, uh, playing video games, surfing the internet, social media, and listening to music. All right? So listen, moms and dads, we're in a world where your kids are going to come home and say, well, my friends get to do this and my friends get to do that. My daughters tried that on me when they were growing up and literally they would say, dad, why can't we do it? They get to do it and they're good Christian people and they're in the church. And I would look at them and literally say, because I'm not as crazy as they are. I did not care about peer pressure. I knew I was going to stand before God someday. I wanted to deliver my children to adulthood safe and sound. And here's the problem. We have an epidemic of pornography amongst young men, but here's the worst part of it. It's among young women now. There's an epidemic of young women addicted to porn because of our technology. I love technology, but you better control it. And if you need any help, if you need any help with that, we have some great ideas at Renew Nation know about a lot of software and tools to help you manage your kids' technology. You better work hard at it. Examine their educational experience. Uh, I'm assuming that most of you have your kids in a Christian school. If you do not, let me just say this to you. I think we can all agree that if your children are not for any reason able to be in a Christian school, they're not going to develop a biblical worldview as a result of being in a non-Christian school, be that private or public. So you're going to have to homeschool them at night. You're going to be super intentional to make sure they develop a biblical worldview. You need to become a student of biblical worldview yourself. You need to help your church make a greater impact. We have a fantastic church and family division where we help churches really learn to train their parents and grandparents in biblical worldview so that they will train their children at home. And then you need to train your children at home, moms and dads. You need to be super intentional. Now, I don't like to come in and challenge you and tell you that you ought to do this, that, and the other without leaving a couple resources. So we brought a few things with us out here to California or shipped them out here. First of all, the Review Magazine. There's some of them out there. There's a brand new one on my table against the back wall. It's a green one. It's the latest one. It's got some fantastic articles in it. Take those home free. And I think um, the BJU Press brought a number of issues from the past of our magazine out there on the table. You can take any of those you'd like for free. I also brought a book called Biblical Worldview, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How to Shape the Worldview of the Next Generation. That is a very clear primer on biblical worldview. It's written for parents and grandparents. It's not written philosophically like something from Francis Schaeffer. It's written so that you can understand it and pass it on to your children. Then I brought an amazing book called 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home. And this book came into, into existence because Dr. Josh Mulvihill, again, who leads our church and family division, he and I were speaking in Minnesota one night a few years ago. And he literally told this story at the end of one of his speeches that I had never heard about. He said, when, he, he said, when I was a 17-year-old boy, my mom and dad, his mom and dad had been Campus Crusade for Christ missionaries for 37 years. He said, my mom and dad took me out to breakfast and sat me down. And he goes, and they never did that. And I was wondering, why did they take me alone out to breakfast? I'm 17. Am I in trouble for something? He said, my, my parents pulled out this old sheet of paper and, and unfolded it and slid it across the table. And here's what they said, Josh when you were just a little boy, we sat down and wrote down all the things we wanted you to know before you left home. And this is what we've been working on your whole life. Tell us how we did and what should we work on for the last year of your life with us. Josh said his whole life flashed before his eyes. He, he said, literally, it was everything from inductive Bible study to small engine repair. And he said, when I looked through the whole thing, I said, look, I think you've done halfway decent on everything except for small engine repair, and I'm begging you to give up on it because you're never going to teach me that. I can't do it. <laughs> well, Josh tells that story as we're speaking out in Minnesota, and I'm sitting there going, where's the list? I want to see the list. And when we went back to our book table, almost every young family in that church lined up at our table and asked Josh, do you have a copy of the list? Well, he didn't because his mom died not long after that when he was in his 20s, suddenly of Lou Gehrig's disease within six months. He never got a copy of it. But I looked at him that day and I said, that, that list is written on your heart and your mind, and that is your next book. <laughs> so it is 50 things. It's here tonight. It is an amazing resource. And I invite you to go back there and take a look at it tonight. Also, there's a, there's a DVD back there of the speech I'm giving tonight. And then let me just talk to you about my grandkids as we close. This is Marshall. He's the oldest one. Henry's the fattest one there on the right. And Nora's our little granddaughter. She's only seven months old. Oh, that's what they really look like. The last picture is what we put on social media. This is what it was like in real life. 
But Marshall's four years old. He lives on a 2,000-acre farm in Tennessee. We have an 800-acre camp and a 1,200-acre farm that we now manage and run. We own the camp. We're going to own the farm someday when the lady passes away. She's leaving all that to renew a nation. It's crazy. We have hundreds of head of cattle down there. And this little boy's growing up on that cattle farm. He's four years old. He already drives a full-size four-wheeler. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> he drives me all over the place on a four, four, full-size four He actually moves cattle. He helps his dad move cattle. He gets paid a dime a line to move these cattle. They move the cattle every day. But he drives around on that big thing, you know. And I was down there not long ago, and it's in the mountains, and we got to this real steep hill, and he stopped the four-wheeler, and he said, Papa, do you want to drive up the big hill? I said, yes, sir, I do. He goes, now you be careful. <laughs> I said, boy, I've been riding around with a four-wheeler, and you're telling, uh, you know, a four-wheeler, a kid, a four-year-old riding a, driving a four-wheeler, and you're telling me, be careful. I love that kid half to death. I can't wait. I get to see him in a little over a week. But here's what I've, here's what I've been thinking about since Marshall was born. Do you realize that it's likely his children will still be alive 100 years from now? Think about it. If he has a kid at, say, 30, which he'll have him before then, probably. But if he has a kid at 30, 26 years from now, and that kid lives to 74, that's 100 years from now. His kids will still be alive 100 years from now. And the reason I'm so committed to pouring my life into that little boy, and the reason why I travel this whole nation challenging parents and grandparents to pour their souls into their children and grandchildren, is because we're not dealing with the next 18 years before they leave home. That's not what we're impacting. We're not impacting in a school the next 12 years that we have them until they graduate from high school. No. If we will do well by, if I'll do well by Marshall and his parents will do well by him and they will teach him God's truth and lead him to an intimate relationship with Christ, 100 years from now, his children will have raised children, will have grandchildren. Let me tell you something. It's not complicated how we fix the problems in our nation. We must regain access to the hearts and minds of our children and teach them God's truth and unleash them on this world. That's how we change our world right there, ladies and gentlemen. And so I want you to look at the children in your home, your grandchildren, the children in this church and the children in school. Go look in their eyes and pray, oh God, help me to do my part in their life so that a hundred years from now their kids are doing their part in a whole bunch of other kids' lives. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.